Hi, I'm Jamin Brazil. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Andrew Moffat, Partner and Chief Strategy Officer at Opinion Route. Founded in 2013, Opinion Route is a services and software company focused on quantitative market research. They are widely known for their clear ID offering designed to identify survey participants who are either bots or come from a survey farm. Prior to joining Opinion Route, Andrew spent 17 years at Survey Sampling International, which was acquired by Dynata, where he started as a sales director and then moved up to SVP of Global Strategic Partnerships. Andrew, thanks very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Jamin. Nice to be here. This episode is brought to you by SurveyMonkey. Today, almost everyone has taken a survey, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel and research services, SurveyMonkey has launched a fast and easy way to collect market feedback. They have seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customized methodologies, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your ideas from your target market in a presentation-ready format. And by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, visit surveymonkey.com slash market dash research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market dash research. Mention the Happy Market Research podcast to the SurveyMonkey sales team before June 30th for a discount off your first project. Before we jump into the company, I want to talk a little bit about yourself. Give us some context. Tell us about your parents and how they informed what you do today. Sure, sure, sure. So I grew up in Ireland, actually, and moved to the States in my early 20s and actually moved straight from college in Ireland to Connecticut to work at SSI back in the late 90s. Before I, I guess, ended up in the States, obviously grew up at home in rural Ireland and my mom and dad, quite interesting, we never really had a lot, but never wanted for anything, I would say, at the same time. And grew up with cows up my back wall, not uh, like you have here in, in some urban areas in the States. And my dad worked in the factory for gosh, probably 20 years doing shift work, uh, making cheese and butter and things like that. And then all of a sudden, one day, decided to leave and take redundancy when he had five kids and uh, arrived home one day and just couldn't do factory life anymore. And from that redundancy, my mom actually started her own business and had a video store in my local town. And so we were the local blockbuster as you could say. And then my dad took that same business and put it on the road into different parts of rural Ireland and the countryside. So like driving around in a van and delivering videos to people who didn't have a means to get to a bigger town or um, just wanted to, to watch movies, which in those days you didn't have Netflix, right? It was physical movies and showing up to people's doors. This would have been like VHS cassette tapes, right? VHS cassette tape, tapes, exactly. And so I remember like sitting on my kitchen table looking through movies that would be coming out in the next kind of three to six months and picking out which ones we wanted to buy for the store and 
It was quite fun. And obviously, now I'm an entrepreneur today, coincidentally, probably left the non-entrepreneurial entrepreneurial life around the same time my dad did. You know, the one thing that I, I'll say about my mom is she kind of ran the, the video store is that when, when that business fell apart due to Netflix and cable and and all of those things, she didn't just like shut the door. She actually created a new business in its place. So one week she had a video store and within, you know, two weeks later, they converted the whole thing into like a $2 store, like a, a dollar store kind of concept. And, and they still run that today. And so it's that resiliency in times of change and things like that, that I admire a lot about them. Have you ever talked to your dad about why he wound up leaving the secure job? Yeah, I have. <laughs> and I think, you know, for him, it was a lot about he didn't really have much of a life outside of going to work because when you're doing shift work, he like you work one week's eight to four, then four to eight and then 12 to eight. So there would be weeks when he wouldn't get to hang out at home and had five kids and got tired of that life and just packed it all in one day and you know, I guess in my life, I kind of had similar experiences. Uh, before I left SSI, I was traveling quite a lot. I would travel all around the world. I also left it at a time when I felt their reasoning for, for being changed from you know, kind of being the forefront of sampling to chasing, I think, probably things like factories chase, which is more and more money and to help drive the business. So I think. There's probably way too similarities to be comfortable in that in that uh, in those timelines and those reasons, but but uh, I think they were pretty similar. And so, as it relates, as you kind of connect, have you found this period where we're basically sequestered to our homes uh, or living areas? Has it been a refreshing time? I've loved this. As weird as that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, three years ago when I left SSI, I stopped almost all business travel. So I don't really travel at all anymore. And that's why listening to your podcast is very great for me because I get to hear what's happening in the market and the industry and trends and what people are doing. But I, you know, it's almost like I wanted to be home more than I was. And you start to see yourself more and hear yourself more and, and learn about yourself when you don't have the same distractions in your life. And in a way, it's kind of helped me through what we're doing right now being quarantined because I've kind of, <laughs> I've done that a little bit and done a lot of self-discovery over the past few years. How old are your children? I have a 17-year-old and a 9-year-old. And both are at home? So one one is a junior and one's in third grade. And yeah, they're both at home, which has been the best part of this whole thing, just spending more time together. How has that changed that relationship at all, if at all? The quarantine or just being at home more? The byproduct of the quarantine, really, with respect to the fact that, you know, they're not necessarily underfoot. I don't know if they are or not, but I mean, you know, your proximity and access is certainly a lot greater. Yeah. They're doing good. They're at home. They're doing virtual schools. I think we're getting to hang out more. Like everyone is trying to get out and go for a walk once or twice a day. We get to do that as a family. We do everything. Like my son doesn't have any after school activities. So he's at home every day. And the less you have to do outside, the more you spend together. And that's been the best part of the whole thing that we get to spend more time as a family and especially with my son going to college next year, having this time was quite invaluable. You 
to get time like this. It's definitely created an opportunity for my family, and I think many, to create like a reprioritization of time spent. Yeah. As we look forward to the post world, you know, so it's going to be interesting. It's exciting to me to see what it looks like coming out of it. My hope is that we're able to take some lessons from this time where we've, you know, been really built intimacy and at the family level. Yeah. And, you know, leverage that forward as opposed to, I felt like, you know, society in, at large was becoming very white knuckled in terms of just fitting more and more and more stuff in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. That's fair. And almost monotonous as well, where you're kind of just repeating things over and over again. And it just gives you a chance to reevaluate and rethink what's important and give things a chance to breathe for a change, including the earth, which has been quite fascinating to see the the way pollution has gone down and, and things start kind of recovering in different parts of the world. It's, it just shows you how little the earth needs in order to become healthier again. You know, a couple of months of shutting down and you have fish showing up in canals that haven't been there for ages. Which is funny because you might have more fishermen out. at least they can work right isolation so give us a little bit of context of opinion route yeah the business has been around since 2013 in that when you started out what market problem is it addressing and 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 what what is it addressing today yeah so when opinion route started out with terrence who's my partner to terrence mccarran as the founder it was very much a service-based data collection business. Um, so anything from programming through reporting and putting together a deliverable on the data collection side for clients. And I call it a model similar to MROps for those that know the industry. Um, it was a business that we acquired at SSI and got to know pretty well and really focused on high touch, high service, almost like a boutique sampling firm, if there such a thing exists, or a data collection firm, and getting senior level contact and engagement on a lot of, of the work, which works for certain clients. It's certainly not a mass market product. And for those that cared for good service, kind of someone that you can put it into their hands and not worry about it, and a high quality, data quality focused offering is really how that business grew and really focusing on getting data sets that are actionable. And it's kind of led to a lot of the technology products that we've built, kind of how we've dealt with data quality over the years. So our clean ID product, which is in the fraud prevention space and B2B validation products, which is coming out shortly, are really just products trying to scale out a lot of what we've been doing manually and over the past number of years and trying to find a better, more scalable, data-driven way to make decisions. Yeah, I think it was Reed Hastings, but I might be mistaken, said do things that don't scale. Yeah, right? and he then, says that all the time. I actually did a Masters of Scale course at the Harvard Business School with him last year. And it was, he did the last lecture and he always says do things that don't scale, right? And, you know, and that's a lot of what we're doing right now is figuring out what clients are dealing with and putting together solutions that allow them to buy better or have better data in order to make decisions to move forward with. 
there is a lot of change that has happened in our ecosystem. I yep. mean, at a global level, but now drilling down into market research. In a lot of ways, market research is becoming more important for companies mm-hmm. as their you know opportunities to interact with customers has shifted in many cases. Yeah, you know this is funny because you know having lived through the dot com bust and then you know the uh, financial crisis, even nine eleven, which is a you know major impact at, at state uh, in the U.S. This is the first real global crisis that I've ever faced in in my life and. And so, you know, what we're seeing is, I would say, some growth, but maybe it's not categorical inside of market research right now. And so I've asked this question among about 350 people, and I'm really interested in your answer today in this context, right? How will market research be different in the next few years? Mm. It's a good question. It's impossible to predict, except to say that technology will certainly be involved in just doing what it's doing today, just making things happen better, faster, cheaper, whether we like it or not. And I think what you're seeing is a creation of multiple platforms within the industry that are enabling you know, companies to do a lot more with a lot less. So whether it's the bigger organizations like a Kantar or an Ipsos creating platforms, which is essentially try to take parts of their own workflows and systems and automate them as much as they can um, and make them accessible to users and tying them to their brands as much as possible. And and also seeing platforms through the likes of, you know, Dynata and Scent and Lucid, both in terms of consumer exchange models, but also extending beyond the data collection process to try and take some of these guys on. So if you're a supplier in one of those platforms, if you're a competitor to one of those platforms and you're a small to medium-sized research agency, like how are you going to change and adapt in that new environment as maybe these platforms become places where people go and buy most of what they need? And so I'm, I'm interested to see which ones stick around, which ones kind of emerge and companies themselves change and evolve to both compete and partner in this new world. It's always been an industry that's thrived on healthy or on an unhealthy co-opetition, right? And I think we're going to see more of that as, as things change and evolve. And especially in the economic environment that we're in, things like this typically see things partner more than compete more. And, you know, because it requires less investment. And so we'll see some interesting partnerships develop. I'm interested in your take as well, actually. Just <laughs> <laughs> Well, you I think you're, I think you're, you're exactly right. I mean, technology continues to eat the world, right? I mean, there's no question about that. Yeah. The, you know, better, faster, cheaper, pick three. You know, that's something we've heard our whole lives and it just continues to, um, I guess the, the wrapper now is agile, right? Yeah. And that absolutely exists. So there's two things. I think, you know, quant is going to continue to grow dramatically hmm. um, as it becomes more and more accessible and easy to execute, right? So hmm. that's where the benefit of, you know, tools that are easy to use is that more people can use them. Exactly. And it democratizes access to market research. You know, that's certainly you know, this like overall enablement of consumer insights. The other part of that that I think is going to be an emergent, I don't know if it's going to come out of market research, but I certainly hope it does, is sort of the education around how to 
you know, how to use the insights. Mm. So, which I, I think is a big, is a big void right now. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Once you create the tools that are easy, now you have people that are usually non not sophisticated relative to market research, of course. They're much right. smarter than us in every other area. <laughs> you know, they, they need to understand what the application is of significant differences, if that's something that's being reported on or what have you. So anyway, I definitely think education is, a, is one of those pillars that's going to change for us or opportunity for us. We've entered into, in a lot of ways, I think we've over-indexed as an industry on automating the sample piece. Yes. It was really, really hard. I mean, Scent tried it and did it early, very early. And then Lucid, you know, whatever, 10-ish years or 15 years later, kind of moved into that space and very effectively created a two-sided marketplace. And now you've seen other companies that have spun out as well. I think, you know, the, the byproduct of that is what's really interesting, which is almost like a black box. So SSI, for the listeners that don't know, SSI, it's probably the oldest, no longer existing, but one of the very early sample companies before the internet. And in those days, the, there were a number of ways that you would get access to humans for research. One was phone. And SSI, I believe, had the dominant presence for if you wanted to do phone-based research, they had access to people that were willing to participate, right? Is that fair? But they weren't panels per se. They were straight, either random digit files or or, yeah. or more targeted telephone sample. And in fact, exactly, exactly, RDD. Yep. Where where Terence and I met was was at SSI when we were trained pre online. That's our, how we, my partner and I met. And we weren't allowed on the phones or talk to clients or even engage <laughs> with anyone outside of our organization without three months of in depth training on sampling methodologies from the likes of Linda Pekarski and Jackie Lorich right. and other folks that are kind of leaders within that space. And yeah, absolutely. Kind of the Bill Gates of yeah. um, sampling. And so there, there used to be a lot of science that went into the actual creation of a sample frame and then the subsequent recruiting against those people into the projects. And I'm not saying it was all perfect, but yeah. I mean, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. And it needed to be a lot of work because it was very expensive and time consuming. Well, it's also where that information is being used. It needed the level of rigor and methodological selection that gave you confidence you had a robust uh, sample of the population that you were researching. So I'm going to disagree. I agree with you conceptually, but I think like from a practitioner's perspective, I believe that there was a lot more sort of confirmation bias that we were trying to create than we see today. So I think the rules today are a lot different. Maybe that's not entirely accurate, but my experience, so this is like a sample of one, yeah. is that businesses have moved more to be consumer oriented versus, you know, the 25 years ago or whatever. hundred percent. That's probably a... Yeah. So anyway, that'd be a fun debate to have though. Actually, we should do that when this whole thing's over with, with a couple of beers. <laughs> but the broader point here is that there's a, you know, there was a lot of rigor that went into the sample sampling and we functionally automated that whole pain right now, which it was very painful. When I say it was very painful, I promise you it was, it was like getting a, uh, a root canal and now it's super easy. Like we don't even think about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. But the problem with that is it's created this like hotbed of fraud because as once you black box it, you don't really have any visibility on who the participant is that's taking the research. Yeah. So I, I agree with you completely. And it's a function of all that change and all that investment has basically directly caused much of this. Because if you look at like what a panel company like SSI, what 
essentially drove prime, like two thirds of their cost base would have been people and product, right? So people would be anyone engaged in the delivery of the products. So you saw a lot of those dollars move towards lower costs or offshore models like in India or the Philippines or Eastern Europe and various places. And in time, through DIY tools, even saw some of that being pushed back onto the researcher, right? But on the supply side, much of what used to happen 10 years ago was all double opt-in panels that were used as the supply source for the industry, right? So if you wanted to get something, you were tapping into an organization's supply that they had grown and built and incentivize and manage and engage with on a daily basis. With the introduction of programmatic and integrating APIs into the supply chain, which is basically, basically now it's resulted in every quote unquote panel company or supply company being an aggregator of some kind, right? So they are aggregating their own supply and the supply of others. And the supply of others is not always built in the same way that their own supply is, right? So you're mixing in double opt-in panels with traffic that you have no history with and you know nothing about. And as we said, it subjects itself to more potential fraud coming into the ecosystem because you lose the layer of validation that a double opt-in process gives you. And to me, data quality and getting to real and unique respondents is probably the biggest challenge the industry actually has right now. And it's a function of both how people are being sourced for surveys, as well as the technology that is in operation within the industry to try and prevent fraud and prevent duplication and survey farms and things like that entering into the system to begin with, which is frankly why we created the product that we did in Clean ID, because um, we didn't find a good solution that existed in the market, and we knew it was probably one of the biggest challenges. So that's basically why we focused on building that first. We also built a B2B validation tool because as prone as the consumer research is to fraud and poor respondent behavior, we see that become infinitely worse within the B2B channels where in some cases it's not uncommon to kick out 40 or 50% of your sample because you don't think it's accurate or represents what that market looks like. So to me, <laughs> it's probably a challenge that you know we took on as something that we wanted to technology technologically fix in an open, transparent, data-driven way that gave people the opportunity to take data and use it and understand how fraud impacts their environment and be able to give them the tools to be able to solve that. I think that should cover up for what I'm saying because I'm yeah. rambling no, a little that's bit. That's a great point. <laughs> no, that's perfect. So this is a, a material issue because even if let's say it's 30% are bad respondents. The question is, are you removing the right 30%? Right. And, and so the, the scalpel as opposed to the chainsaw is analogy is really important here. And, yeah. and so technologically is in simpleton's terms, how are you able to identify good versus bad participants? Yeah. So what we essentially do is look at the device 
itself and within the device actually look for characteristics that we know are known exhibitors of survey respondent fraud. So looking at a device and seeing how often any of its characteristics have changed. If an IP address is constantly changing or making itself to you know, look unique or other parts of that machine, we're able to tell that and you can then make a decision off of that data, right? So we've got 34 of those different markers that are available for people to make decisions based off of it. And you can make a decision whether, you know, this is so bad because this person's coming in in an anonymized nature from the dark web that if they come in, we don't want them to be part of our environment. So let's remove them completely. And then you've got other markers, which you can set as kind of low, medium, and high, that their cumulative effect, cumulative effect will allow you to make decisions on them. So if you've got someone that has hit a couple of high markers, that's probably going to yield a score that's going to remove them from your environment. Or if they hit one high marker and three low markers, they'll remove that individual. And the beauty of it is that you can kind of see what's happening real time within a project. You can review what's happening over time amongst your vendor set and see which channels are giving you most fraud or what types of fraud they're giving and um, giving the users that information is really what we're trying to empower people to do. You talked earlier about, you know, lots of black boxes that are created within the industry. Um, there are supply back black boxes where you don't necessarily always get to control what goes into your studies and decisions on that supply from a routing perspective. We're trying to, with our technology that will come out, give people enough data so that they can own that responsibility themselves if they want to and understand it and help create their own profile that works for their own organization. And in a way that really is simple for them to understand and make decisions off of what the tools give them. Well, we could talk a lot about the getting into the weeds of this is hard for me not to as a um, <laughs> as an operator in the space for so long because there's a lot of technological challenges there but i think you know it might just put everybody to sleep it might at the end of the day i really <laughs> i really want more listeners <laughs> but then but, on the B2B yeah, side it's really that that is something that we're i think is a game changer because as i said within b2b so while much automation has happened in the programmatic space it's really all happened around consumer research. There's not been a lot in the B2B space that's been new or not a lot of new type supply that's in, entered into the industry in quite some time. While I was at SSI, I was part of a task force that was asked to help build B2B as a competitor to research now. In doing so, we basically built the same model where we went out to the same airlines and hotels and gave them better return on investment for their marketing. And they ended up shifting some dollars our way. but with the merger between Research Now and SSI, that created just one large dominant player within B2B. And when I got out of SSI, once I set out my non-compete, the first thing I did was try to find a viable alternative. So I actually did a deal with an expert network who does a lot of qual um, that would engage respondents in conversations with private equity companies and consulting firms to help inform investment and acquisition decisions and actually use those guys for quant research for a good part of 
a year for 18 months or so. And when I did, and I put them against all of the supply in the industry and those same jobs that I referred to earlier where we're kicking out like 40, 50% of the respondents, we started removing less than 5% from these sources because of the nature of who they were. They were folks that had participated in qual engagements. They were already validated through their LinkedIn profiles or resumes and had telephone conversations for at least an hour with individuals. So we knew they were real people and kind of set out to create a tool that would allow a panel or a database owner or a buyer of sample to be able to use a tool to validate who's in their audience. So if you're a panel owner, to be able to take your panel and overlay B2B information, both on a personal level, so what that person's job is and their function within that job, as well as their firmographic information about the size of the organization they work for, the industry, the name of the company, and things that would help inform sampling decisions when they needed them. So this is currently in the market in pilot mode with a bunch of clients right now. We're fielding B2B jobs with validated sample versus non-validated sample to look at differences in not just removal rates, but how they trend relative to market share and other things that would tell us that these are providing more accurate, more informed, authentic business decisions at the end of the day. And um, working with some panels to provide them with some data sets that potentially help replace self-reported profiling within the panel world. And for some companies, actually overlay a B2B asset onto a panel that may be consumer right now. So being able to take a consumer panel and figure out who's actually in there that should be usable from a B2B perspective and be able to use them with confidence. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point that you're making, you know, because B2B really is B2C in a lot of ways, right? I mean, if you're on LinkedIn, you're probably on Facebook yeah. or Insta or, or what have you. So there is that cross opportunity that exists. A hundred percent. And although you're tending to find, say, lower level people within consumer panels than you would say through a business panel, which makes sense, they're still you know small business owners and employees of organizations that you can identify more freely and usually manager level and below is probably the highest level you'll find within there with the exception of small business owners but it opens up the pool of available respondents that you wouldn't consider prior to this and and also um for organizations that are looking to embed into their recruitment channels being able to while someone is double opting in validate somebody by the time they go to click on the double opt-in email you already know a lot more about this respondent and they could be your your higher value return on investment panelists because they can yield five to ten x what a consumer panelist can yield and then you can pass them differently you can as i said overlay some of the known information on those respondents directly on there without asking those folks at the recruitment stage and kind of limit respondent engagement to what's really necessary. There's a lot of profiling and a lot of respondent time that's taken up today prior to them doing anything within an environment um, that we're trying to eliminate, as well as eliminate a lot of the back-end headaches that exist for researchers and end clients and both cleaning data, as well as making sure that the clean set of data 
you know, has some real world sensibility to it in terms of market share. Let's shift gears. You have worked in, you know, SSI being one of the premier companies and now, you know, with the work that you've been doing at uh, your current firm and then probably even more broadly, the fact that you've seen companies from small to big and interacted um, at an executive level as well as, you know, in the phone room, which I love that. Yeah. It's a beginning story. What do you see right now as three characteristics of an all-star employee? Oh, uh, I, I can have one <laughs> and we could probably pick three things within it that, that makes sense, but I really hire for attitude more than anything else. And within that attitude, I look for someone who's resilient. I think it's a very important characteristic. It might be the most important of anything that I've seen, just someone to be able to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and, and be able to take their, their licks and move on. That kind of type of character is hard to come by. Someone that's willing to do anything. When my wife actually, she ended up working at SSI for a while, but when she had her interview there, they asked her what she'd be willing to do. She said, I'd be willing to wash windows. And she really would. Um, so it was, uh, but it's someone that like, wouldn't say something like, uh, this is, this is not in my pay level or, uh, this is not in my job description. Obviously those types of folks, it's the antithesis to those kinds of people. And I think the last thing within there is to look for kind people like people that have a good heart. And I have some weird interview questions that I ask people that tend to get to those points. And it talks to kind of like your first question, right? Talk about your, your parents and talk about how you grew up. And you get to learn a lot about a person by getting them to talk about their lives, which, um, which I look for and really value in the interview process. Um, so, you know, it's funny, social media, unfortunately, has informed and also I think incorrectly informed our opinions of potential hires uh, and employers. And one of the things I used to do with, speaking of humility, with Decipher when we were probably going from 20 to maybe 75 employees in that sort of that size, Jamie Plunkett would do the interviews as well as myself occasionally. But one of the two of us would sit at the front and pretend we were the receptionist. And when that person would show up, we'd actually do a part of the interview right there just to see how they treated the person. I love that. Um, who was the perceived receptionist. Yeah, it was really funny. <laughs> I think, you, you know, if you over-index on kindness, it'll all work out. It all works out. <laughs> I actually have this receptionist that at a client that I've had for, gosh, almost 20 years now. And I, I love her. She's the first person you get to greet when you go there. The first person always answers the phone and you develop a relationship with these people over time, you know? And I just think that that kind of experience is how you treat, you know, you should treat everyone the same, regardless of who they are. So whether it's the secretary at the front desk or whether it's the CEO when you go into an interview, or maybe it's the CEO at the front desk pretending to be the receptionist, but your character comes out in all of those moments. So, um, so I like that. My last question. What is your personal motto? Uh, the worst thing they can do is say no. <laughs> I've always kind of like shot for the stars. Having grown up in rural, rural Ireland, I never thought this was going to be part of my life. And I remember one time, very poignantly, like I was in the Empire State Building. It was up on some large floor in there. And I looked out the window and I was like, I, I can't believe 
that I'm actually here in a meeting looking because it was such an iconic symbol, you know, growing up in Ireland, you would look at the movies and whatever. And when I got to that point, it wasn't that long into my days at SSI, I decided just to go for it. And it's been a wonderful characteristic and trait to have. It's almost like, uh, ever see that movie, Yes Man with Jim Carrey? <laughs> it's trying to come up with some ideas and some people will say they're impossible to, to make happen and just seeing if you can make it happen. So I like to think and operate in, that, in those terms. My guest today has been Andrew Moffat, partner and chief strategy officer at Opinion Route. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks, Jamin. Appreciate it. Everybody else, if you found value in this episode, please do me a favor, screen capture, share on social media, LinkedIn and Twitter are my two primary platforms, but I'm trying to get to know TikTok too. Look me up. I will, uh, if you tag me, by the way, I will send you a shirt. I promise. Have a great rest of your day.